a little bit of explanation because I thought about it, what the question you raised about uh, different dimensions of object A. And I just, if you permit me, would like, before we begin to improvise a little bit, uh, beginning with, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, it's easy to define what Lacan calls objectita, object small a, in abstract terms. But then, the whole point of this notion of object A is how it's really a dialectical notion. It's how totally opposite determinations coincide in it. For example, on the one hand, object A is usually called, how do you call it, a piece of grain in the machine. You know, like, some in like imagine a purely formal structure and then you have some little remainder of totally contingent material stuff which again as with that and incidentally now I will tell you about this record don't put it the lady who told me that her last lover told her uh, that with when she saw her naked that with two three kilos less she would be perfect this lady has a name, she is my wife. Okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I played this game from far away and so on. <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, it's this sign of imperfection which is apparently an obstacle, but precisely as an obstacle it, as it were, sustains what it appears to be an obstacle to. And, uh, uh, again, what has, why is this object cause of desire? Because, okay, let's start with the elementary things. When Lacan says object cause of desire, the first distinction to be drawn, I'm sorry, like you be my professor and scold me if I don't do things. We are talking elementary things, but I think we should do this. Don't you think that it's easy to bluff complex notions, but the really difficult thing is to raise these totally elementary questions. And in spite of my later conflict with him, that's why I admire Jacqueline Miller, the great Stalinist Lacan. Uh, I always called him a Stalinist when we were friends, and he laughed because you know why? Lacan says in Encore, draws this parallel, Freud and Lacan, uh, uh, Marx, and Marx and Lenin. And then, well, who is the next guy? Uh, uh, it's Freud, Lacan, Lacan's successor, Miller, Lenin, Stalin, well, it's <laughs> Stalin, you know, and uh, uh, once, this was my lucky time, uh, early 80s, when I was privileged, it, before it became a public spectacle, Miller had in Paris every week a closed seminar, just 15, 20 people, and there I witnessed what is a true master, uh, educational wonder. For example, for one semester we were reading maybe one of the most difficult of Lacan's texts, uh, Kant avec Sartre, Kant with Sartre, you know, like page by page, sentence by sentence, and this was the miracle of Miller. You read the page, you understand nothing. Then you listen to Miller for two hours, and it becomes so transparent that you could, like, why was I so stupid? Everything is self-evident. 
it, with all problems I have with him, personal, even theoretical, he is the only absolute pedagogical genius that I know. You know, he is, uh, Lacan, was, Lacan was happy to have him because for a whole generation, even for those who later disagreed with him, Miller made Lacan readable. And I didn't lose my thread. Miller was a master of this. Like, you know, this blah blah bullshit, divided subject, the subject is divided. Miller was torturing us once for two hours. Okay, between what and what is the subject divided, you know? And of course, we went through and came to the only consistent answer, you know? It's not between this and that for Lacan. It's not, you have a conscious part and then the stupid iceberg beneath the unconscious. It's between, you know, Miller quoted one of, was it Gilbert Ryle or one of the British empiricist philosophers who said that if you imagine endlessly cutting a certain quantity, like half, 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 you go endlessly, that the dream is, of course, empirically impossible, that uh, at the end you arrive at a point where you divide a remainder in half, but what you get is not something and something, but something and, and nothing, you know. And that this is the, this is the, uh, this is the subject's division. In this sense, the subject is divided between something and nothing. You arrive at the subject when you have a something, a signifier which represents the subject, which stands for nothing, and then here, at, at the second level, object A enters. Object A fills in this nothing. Now we get here the first ambiguity of object A. On the one hand, it's that piece of, uh, piece of uh, dust or whatever, the empirical remainder, which precisely as an obstacle gets your desire in motion. <laughs> well, I, I repeat this old story, I used it, but sorry, I will use it again just to make it clear. I remember when I was young, younger, they are now half forgotten. There were two model beauties, uh, the German and the American one, Claudia Schiffer and, uh, what's the American one? My God, she is Cindy Yeah, 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 ah, you see, we from Baltimore, <laughs> we know who are the beauties. And, uh, Although this would be, uh, maybe Balkan is an object A, because maybe, you know, I'm sorry for this joke. You know, when you ask people, where is Balkan? You know, like we Slovenes, we are like everyone the usual racist. We say, no, we are still middle Europe, middle Europe. Balkan begins in Croatia. Croat says, no, we are the last frontier of Western civilization. <laughs> Serbia is Balkan. Serb says, no, we are Christian. Kosovo, Bosnia, down there is Balkan. So maybe Balkan isn't, and if you go to the end, Greece, they will say, no, we are not, Balkan is up there. <laughs> so my idea is that the only consistent definition of Balkan is that wherever you are, Balkan is a little bit southeast from, from where you are, you know. And then, I'm sorry if you know this joke, the point is that it goes also into the other direction. Like for Austrians, we Slovenes are Balkan. For Germans, my God, already Austrians, you know, Austrian Empire, mixture of races, Austria is already Balkan. For Frenchmen, 
Germany primitive Teutonic, Wild Warriors, Vikings, they are barca. And finally for British, and I tend to agree with them, the whole of Europe is Balkan and Brussels uh, bureaucracy is the new Constantinople. <laughs> you know? So I like this idea. This maybe would be Balkan as objects molecular. But let's go back to my point. Uh, uh, so uh, on the one hand, yes, Claudia Schiffer and uh, uh, Cindy Crawford. You know that I read years ago, and it was done in Europe, so it's not American patriotism, some stupid journal asked some man, you know, like, uh, whom would you prefer as your ideal partner? Cindy Crawford won overwhelmingly. But then it's interesting when they ask men why. And they all mentioned, didn't she have here on her lips a small mole sign? No? They said, this small imperfection makes her human acceptable. That uh, uh, Claudia Schiffer was too perfect, this makes her cold, distance, and so on and so on. You know, it was a nice, it was a nice detail, no? Okay, uh, 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 ah, I can, can I give you, I cannot resist vulgarities. Another example, yesterday evening, you remember when I explained how uh, even these most spontaneous outbursts of swearing, orgies, are there you find culture at its purest. Their ritual, symbolical structure. <laughs> I think I used this somewhere, but probably don't know it in a book of mine, the only one, that uh, the same goes for hardcore pornography. Namely, a guy who is called Dean McKenner. He's a professor in, uh, somewhere in San Francisco. No, it's another, uh, call it doesn't matter. I know him because he is the husband of Juliet Flower McKennell, an old Lacanian from San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, he told me he's a crazy guy, more crazy than me, if you don't believe me. He did a research into and published a totally crazy article, like research into the expressions on women's faces while they are banged in hardcore pornography. And he discovered a whole semiotic system. It's not the woman just does it. It's really a kind of a semiotic square. And then he spoke with people who produce hardcore and learned that this is totally, they just they have names for it, producer, and it's just the woman, do this expression, do that expression. The four expressions are, you really can make these four elements of Lacanian discourse into it. The one, the most obvious one is that, I'm sorry, I cannot do it, but it's that, uh, how should I call it, simply the trance, you know, okay, I cannot do it, but like, you are overwhelmed, ecstatic. The second one, now things get interesting, the second one is, uh, uh, is uh, this is almost my favorite one to watch, is a kind of a instrumental control, you know, lips type, uh, like, I'm, I'm in the middle of a hard work, let's, you know, like, you make an effort, this, I'm in the middle of business, hard work. The third one, that's interesting, the third one is uh, uh, boredom. And many men find this attractive, you know, a woman is chewing gum, look, oh, fuck it, do it, I don't care, you know, it's ignorance. And there's some truth in it for a woman to be truly fatal, there must be some indifference in her. Which is why I was told by my Russian friends, 
It's not their great soprano. Now, got, okay, we politically incorrect a little bit too chubby. Uh, Anna Netrebko, if you know anything about opera, you must know her beautiful dark hair. She was, but you know we Slavs know. Yeah. Netrebko, trebat means needed. It's wonderful, a fatal woman and her name is Netrebko. Fuck off, I don't need you. No? <laughs> like this indifferent ignorance. And so this is then the third position and the fourth position, the most provocative one, is it's also uh, uh, codified. Woman looks into the man with this mocking smile. <laughs> is this all you can do or whatever, you know? And it's wonderful. It's totally codified, you know? And they have, like, I mean, but on the other hand, it's better that you don't, because I was told by this guy and some others, if you witness shooting of a hardcore movie, it's such a totally depressing experience, you know. A French guy, Siboni, but not Daniel, another one, <coughs> did a year or two ago from my friends at Cayuti Cinema, I got a copy, uh, a documentary with the title In Por Sexuel, even. There is no sexual relationship. It's done like this. The director contacted a hardcore producer and uh, made a deal. They are shooting a hardcore movie. He, this documentarist, will just stay behind and shoot the entire scene, you know. I must tell you, I have it. I even thought of bringing it to you, but they don't want to be arrested here for whatever reason. <laughs> it's the most depressing film I've seen. You know, because first you see how the actors are waiting, you know, the guy to get a hard on is desperately masturbating, the woman is calling her daughter, or, you know, on phone, baby, don't be worried, I will be soon home, and so on. And then, you know, you see all this uh, depressing background, and all this, how it's totally faked, you know, like, they do just the faces where you don't see penetration. So, of course, there is no penetration, just the woman is doing this, ah, ah, or what. I mean, it's a totally de depressing thing. I, so, I really think, I'm not kidding, when you are nymphomaniac too much, I think there should be a clinic for nymphomaniacs where they just would be obliged to watch how hardcore pornography is shot and so on, it kills desire to the end. Okay, but, so I come to this point, sorry, let's go on. So, object A. On the one hand, it's this uh, empirical sign of imperfection. But on the other hand, as Lacan emphasizes, it's also the most a purely formal element. As Lacan says, object A is just a certain structural gap. So it's the coincidence of a purely formal void with a totally contingent element filling it in. Uh, this is why, I wonder if you agree, it's a risk. Uh, and because you know this Lacanian definition between, sorry, desire and drive. Desire is endlessly metonymic. It's the experience of always non-satisfied. You know, the formula of desire is senepassa. It's not that. Like, whatever you get, it's just a secondary substitute. In drive, the definition of drive is precisely cessa. You get something, you don't really get it. You just circulate around it, you know, there's 
Lacan's definition of drive, that you fail the object, but to reach the object, but then pleasure, or even jouissance, sorry, is generated by your very repeated failure to reach the object. This is why when uh, I was in Australia, I celebrated them as Australian aborigines, as the inventors of humanity. Because I think if there is an instrument which signalizes the birth of humanity, it's boomerang. You know, officially you use it to hit, but the whole point is to, you know, you miss it, it comes back to you, you do it again, and effectively people who know how to do it don't be there that, you know, it's very dangerous to use boomerang, because the greatest art is that you are not <laughs> to catch it when it comes back to you. So again, uh, this is by Alenka, the other girl here. She developed this nicely of how uh, it's not that you have some, what do they call it, brutal animal sexuality, which is then humanized, you know, like, instead of me, I want a woman, sorry for mentioning this example, instead of directly knocking her head with a stone and raping her, I write poems, whatever, invite her to dinner, no, no, it's that only through culture, Sexuality is sexualized. What animals do is not human sexuality, but it's just some purely neutral activity. It's, it's basically paradise, because you know, as Saint Augustine makes it clear already, there was sex in paradise. But uh, it was Augustine's metaphor. Like, raising, uh, uh, getting erection was the same thing like you raise your hand. There was no excitement, it was pure, simple, instrumental activity. And Lacan's idea is that this very structure of self-sabotage, you fail to do it, you are never sure, you repeat it, sex, uh, sexualizes the situation. And I claim that this can be demonstrated in a very primitive way. I'm sorry some of you know this example of mine. Don't be afraid, it's not vulgar. Although maybe it is. Imagine one of you ladies, I shake your hand. And I do something which is not in any way obscene. I just, you know, we shake hands, then instead of dropping hands, I just go on repeatedly. I shake your hand again, I shake your hand again. Uh, admitted that you would have said, what's this guy up? It would get dirty in a way. The very repetition would minimally uh, sexualize it, no? So I wonder if you agree. I claim, because Lacan at the same time claims that object smolay is object cause of desire, why? In drive, it's also the drive circulates around. Uh, Why are you doing this? What is this? I feel it's like. Stupid. It's that stupid. It's uh, Are you crazy? You know, if I were to run this university, I would also make this circulate, but the point would have been, if you didn't miss my talk at least once, you are out. <laughs> you know, like, why? But, listen, who is doing this? You. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, why don't you give it to them, like, to sign for all the time ahead once, you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I find this, uh, I had a good professor, you know, when 
I like this false permissivity, which is the hidden face of terror. I remember in high school already, we had a professor of history, and we were got assignments, like you know. Once every semester, we wrote there a text, and usually professors insisted you have to know it, so all books, references were prohibited. This professor was a genius of oppression, masked as permissivity. No, he said, bring all the books you want. Because then you were under true pressure, you know, like how to write something. You know, you couldn't just copy from the book, you know. That's the true oppression. And, but I, maybe you know this story, I'm sorry if you do. Uh, it's in one of my very early books, probably don't know I used it. I, only once I was a stand-in for my friend Laden Dolar, I gave exams in the sense of examining students, and uh, I got a lesson in Lacanian theory. Uh, I did succeed in terrorizing them by excessive permissivity, but I was beaten in the game. I loved it. The idea is, you know, when you have these standard exams, you know, the professor asks you a certain question. Isn't it part of a ritual? that the student plays, oh my god, just this question, like anything else, but the question that you get is always treated as a bad surprise, you know, like, oh, the weak point. So, to fight this, I uh, told students, fuck you, you ask yourself any question you want, and you answer it. The effect was, it was totally terror, they were terrified, because they had no excuse. You couldn't have said, oh, sorry, I didn't. Fuck you, you have chosen the question. But I was beaten. You know how? By a couple of students, they did something absolutely ingenious. They asked themselves a question, and they treated it as a bad surprise. Oh, this, oh my god, my god. <laughs> you know, in a totally non-psychological way, once the question was raised by themselves, they treated it as a, a bad surprise, and so on, you know. I was beaten. This is, this is what ask. you were asked, you asked me, some of you, about ideology, no? You know what is ideology and its underside? I'm sorry if you know this uh, story. Yugoslavia, ex-socialist Yugoslavia, was a paradise of ideology. Because the whole system worked through its own violations. So we had a communist regime, which officially it was not against the religion. You, you could, I mean, we were not Albania or what, but nonetheless, not too well looked upon. Okay, so, no, you don't know it, you are too young, but older people remember someone in Medjugorje, Cro Cro Croat south part of Bosnia, Herzegovina, Virgin Mary did what she is paid to do. She appeared there, you know, some visions, blah, blah. So, instead of using the opportunity and organizing, because for a couple of years, Medjugorje was after Lourdes, the second biggest miracle site. The communists said, no, no, we shouldn't encourage it, this is religion. Italian tourist agencies took it over. They earned billions of dollars with Yugoslavia in crisis, economic. It was madness. In my part of Yugoslavia, Slovenia, the communists were more business-oriented, and then it happened there in mid-80s, just north of Ljubljana, in a very, on a very good location between Ljubljana city and the airport. There was a small crossing with a statue of 
Virgin Mary, and this statue did what it's decent of her to do. It started to move with some blood and so on, you know. And communists were ecstatic. We will do it. They immediately kept architectural plan to build a big tourist site there and so on. Then the, the catastrophe happened. The local priest said, no, this is superstition. This is not a true miracle. Now something beautiful you seen happened. The Communist Party weekly attacked the priest for non-patriotic behavior. Like, fuck you, you should help your country, you should change it. What stupid materialism are you preaching now here and so on, you know? But this was, uh, I have a couple, maybe you know them, of stories like this that you should love. And I am answering your question. This is, for me, how the system functions. Or another example, my absolute favorite, I'm sorry if you know it. In the late 80s, maybe we had a very good government, at least in Slovenia. Maybe others said, you know why? Because communists saw the writing on the wall, which means they knew they are lost, basically. And so they tried to be as friendly as possible well, to survive. The game played by Serb communists, but in a different way also by Slovenes, was nationalism. No? The problem, I don't think there is anything natural in the explosion of nationalism. Nationalism was for me at least one of the components it was. The way for communist nomenclatura to survive. It was to present itself as the protector of local Serb, Croat, Slovene, whatever, national interest. So communists were desperate to please people. And they did everything. I remember in Ljubljana, 86 gay homosexuals established their society. Immediately, there was there a member of the Central Committee greeting them with communist support, your movement, do you want money for a newspaper or whatever, you know, like, they just, and that's the beautiful irony. When, in first so-called free elections, the city council was taken over by conservatives, the first thing they did was to cancel this support, so then gay people, oh, where were the communist free times? <laughs> so, okay, what happened was this. In a radio station in Ljubljana, a small called radio student, student radio, a small station, local, out of control by the party. It was dissident controlled. They invited an old party apparatchik for an interview. He was an old retired communist, but you know, true, you know, this great, dresses, speaking the jargon, the true one. They no longer make them like that today. And, and he terribly wanted to, to please the young generation. So, of course, I, was, I totally sympathized with him. The, the guy who interviewed him asked provocative questions. And then came this ridiculous, wonderful moment. The guy, the question he was asked was, uh, how are you doing with sex? Do you enjoy it? How are you doing it? Now the guy knew he must have said he, he must say something positive about sex. But the only language he was able to speak was the communist jargon. So he improvised desperately a celebration of sex in communist terms. He said things like, 
Dreaming about naked women, touching them between their legs, is a great instigation in my struggle for socialism. <laughs> it was wonderful, poor guys. You know, this total, totally obscene, how should I put it, mixture of different uh, discourses, no? Do you know how many of you do know? Uh, that's my fondest memory of the Yugoslav army. Do you know the story about the the soldier masturbating. It's okay, then I can repeat it. It's from my book, which doesn't sell so well, although it's my favorite book of mine, Individual with the Remainder on Shelling and so on. No? This happened to me in the army. This was my moment of, uh, of like, revelation. You know, I understood ideology. Uh, I was in a small military barracks where there was no hospital department doctor. There was just one room in which a certain ordinary regular soldier, who was also a student of medicine in private life, had his room, it was his bed there, office table, you will see why this is important, a long bench, and a small wash basin with uh, a mirror, and you will see why this is important, behind the mirror there were, you know, these soft pornographic, pre-pornographic images of half-naked women and so on, postcards. Okay, so every Saturday, if you were ill, you, you, uh, you said to the officer, and then a doctor came every Saturday morning from military hospital, and we all soldiers who claimed to be ill were examined there. It was done collectively. All of us were sitting behind the bench, and then one after the other, we were called up and blah, blah. Okay, so a soldier was called up. Doctor asked him, what's wrong with you? He said, I have pain in my prick, in bolimecurax. This already triggered laughter because if you say literally bolimecurax, I have pain in my prick, it means I don't give a damn, you know. Like, this is what I liked in the poetry of the army language. How things mean almost the opposite. Like, one of the uh, great military saints was... Uh, 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 the old Kant is not fucking being fucked. But this was the greatest compliment you could give to someone. It meant an old experienced soldier really doesn't care about anything. You know, it's okay. So then the soldier explained that, no, no, he means it literally, that he feels pain when he pulls the skin from the top of his penis. Okay, the doctor says, do it. And the doctor says, but you see, you did it without pain. Then the soldier said, no, 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 it's only when the penis is erected that I feel this pain. Then, now comes the obscenity, the doctor said, okay, let's test it, masturbate. And it was already an orgy, you know, 20 people sitting there, the guy desperately red in face, masturbating, and then, the orgy happened. The doctor started to shout at the soldiers, what man you are, masturbate. Then the doctor went, that's why I mentioned it, to that wash machine and took a photo of a half-naked girl and showed it to the soldier and said, look, what beautiful breasts, what body, look at it, masturbate, look at it. And it became an orgy, in the sense that uh, uh, the doctor was laughing, it was a kind of obscene solidarity. You know, like, we are, 
why am I mentioning this? Because it took me some time to get it. This is how power functions. There was absolutely nothing subversive about it. You know, it's not that you have the oppressive military order rituals and then resist, oh, as they, I hate this term, as some of my enemies would have said, this was one site of resistance, you know. No, it wasn't. If you take away this obscene underside, military discipline would disintegrate. So my point is that this is my lesson on ideology. Ideology is not only the explicit discourse, discipline, sacrifice, and so on. It's absolutely an inherent part of military discipline, these obscene rituals, and so on. Which is why, as I developed in another text of mine, if you take US Army, all I know about it is from Hollywood, but I believe in Hollywood. Reality follows Hollywood. You know, the so-called Marines marching chants, these rhythmic songs that you sing while marching, and which are usually a mixture of sexual obscenities and nonsense, you know? Like, I remember one from a movie where they were, I don't know, but I was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold, you know, like, and you know what I did once? I went almost too far to the girl who will be here, maybe, Avital Ronel. I gave a talk introduced by her, and then I used this example. And then she was a little bit shocked and told, told the part, oh, it was a strange, oh, that song of yours. I, you know, when there is an opportunity for making a further bad taste remark, I cannot resist it, no? <laughs> so I said, oh, Avital, uh, 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 so, you want to hear another version? And I immediately, I don't know, but I was taught that Avital's pussy is rather hot. You know? <laughs> she didn't throw me out. <laughs> Maybe even I, then afterwards, I thought, you know, uh, uh, and then again, I went through the standard Judith Butler ritual, apologizing, you know, and she gave me the same treatment. Slavoj, we know, basically her message was, we all know you are totally crazy, so <laughs> need to apologize. No? But what I wanted to say is that now I'm serious. This is the key lesson. What I already improvised also yesterday. An ideology is not only what it says, it's also the complex network of even solicited transgressions, you know. It, like in the army, I remember this, there were things which were prohibited, but they were things which you were expected to violate. If you didn't do it, you were an idiot. And this is, I've written a lot about it, maybe some of you know the language. This is for me the thing I mentioned yesterday evening worth studying. When you have a language, or any community, rules of a community. It's never just you have rules. For theoretical reasons, which can be nicely explained through the logic of non-all by Lacan and so on, you never have just rules. You always have, let's call them naively, meta-rules, which tell you how to treat rules. Which rules you are supposed even to violate and in what way. And things here get interesting, because you have two types of these unwritten rules. On the one hand, the usual type, rules which 
For example, in the army, they told us, don't get drunk. If on Saturday and Sunday evening you were not drunk, you were considered an idiot. Not only an idiot, but even non-patriotic. You know, like, you are not a true comrade. You don't fraternize and so on. You know, this is a nice example of how drinking was prohibited, which strictly meant you have to do it to prove that you are really one of us, a soldier. So what interests me is, on the one hand, these rules which you are expected to violate, and a much more interesting phenomenon, on the other hand, you were allowed, solicited even, to do something, but you were expected not to use that opportunity. You know, like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, there was a nice example, and I'm not dreaming, I am trying to answer your, you, Stasiga, yes, sir, is, uh, your question. You know, uh, 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 this is the life of ideology for me. For example, uh, uh, in the army, what fascinated me in the Yugoslav army is how openly it played this game of unwritten rules and so on. We had in the mornings military education, simply one hour, second hour. One morning, the first hour was more political education. Quite on a chance, it was a miraculous coincidence that on that day, the officer was teaching us this uh, international Red Cross, whatever rules, you know, do you know, maybe you know this, that there is a rule of warfare that you are not allowed to shoot a parachuter while he is still in the air. This is an international convention. You have to wait that he touches. Okay, we were taught this. Now, this was the miraculous coincidence. Next <coughs> class, next hour, was shooting a gun, and yes, you guessed it. The topic was how do you hit a parachuter in the air? You know, because you have to take into account the movement, uh, how the wind, and so on. And then I was a total idiot, total idiot that I am. I asked the officer, but sorry, sir, one hour ago you were thinking, I didn't know this. Isn't there a contradiction here? And he gave me a right answer. He said, Vizek, you're supposed to be a doctor. I didn't know you are such a complete idiot. So, <laughs> like that. You know, it was simply a, a, ah, another, I'm sorry if you know this example, the one of military. If you know it, I will repeat, probably most of you know. This is, it happened to a friend of mine. He is a hero for me. This is the absolute example of this, you know, you are given a choice, but you are, uh, I don't know how it is if some of you served the army, but in Yugoslavia it was usual. You enter the barracks after a week of, or two of just introductory training, then the solemn moment arrives when you swear the oath. You know, the usual bullshit. I uh, swear solemnly that I'm ready to sacrifice my life for blah blah. And then after that public ritual, each soldier was forced to, forced, okay, expected, that's the catch, to sign his name. A friend of mine did a heroic thing. When he approached the table with that big book, he asked the officer, is this signature obligatory or not? The officer said, no. I mean, swearing an oath must be your free act. The soldier said, okay, then I don't do it. Then the officer said, 
fuck you, you will be arrested or whatever. Then the soldier said, but uh, wait a minute, you told me it's a free act and so on. So they shouted at each other and finally you know what was the result. And that's how I know it really happened. This soldier friend of mine got from the officer a piece of paper ordering him to freely sign the <laughs> And I'm not saying that Yugoslav army was especially totalitarian. I claim that uh, doesn't our love for our country, for our parents, it functions exactly in the same way. You are expected to love your parents, but you are expected to love them freely. Like, you know, this is the catch, I claim, of every uh, ideological field. So, back to my point. This is what interests me so much. These situations where you are given a certain choice, option, on condition that you don't use it. And uh, uh, I'm sorry if you know it, the, the big example, it was confirmed to me uh, by some historical books I read, was <coughs> For example, in Stalinism, officially, it was, of course, in Stalinist Russia, but the same could be separate, it was prohibited to criticize Stalin. My God, you did this, you disappear next day. But it was even more prohibited, you see the catch, to publicly announce this prohibition. Like, sorry, maybe you know this joke of mine, my starter joke. Imagine we are now in Moscow, I'm Stalin, Central Committee meeting, one of you stands up and criticizes me. Okay, we know what will happen. Next day, the big talk among you would be who was the last to have seen that guy alive, no? But then let's imagine then another guy of you would have stood up and would start to shout at the first guy. Are you crazy? Don't you know that here we don't criticize Stalin? I claim that the first, the second guy would have disappeared even faster. You see the point? It was not only prohibited to criticize Stalin. The prohibition itself was prohibited. You had to pretend that, yes, if I want, I can, but simply Stalin is so good. You, you see this basic paradox. The prohibition itself is prohibited. You have to fake it. You have to act as if you are free, although you know that you are not free. And this is why. I claim, here I sympathize with feminists, who told me that uh, this is why the so-called postmodern master, you know, like today, male chauvinists are no longer direct chauvinists usually, you know, like shouting to your wife, okay, why didn't you do my socks, do this, that. No, they, they want to control things, but they pretend that, you know, we are all equal, blah, blah, blah. So, the first step in feminism is it's almost subversive, you know. Let's, let's say you are married to a guy who is a male chauvinist, but covers this up by treating you, oh, we are just partners, all that bullshit. Maybe the most subversive thing to do, maybe, that's my point, even more subversive than directly rebelling, would have been to tell him, please, I'm your slave, treat me as a master. You know, this is why I, this may surprise you, I always loved that, uh, my, okay, now I sound immediately, I'm here. Uh, I understand, does this also happen with knowledge? 
like, like, let me give you an example. Like, let's say, um, I don't know, uh, yesterday we were talking about the sujet, supposé, something yeah, yeah. right? So if I go to someone in the class and I say, uh, I perfectly know that you talk about the sujet, supposé, yeah. you're about to know, hmm? but if I say, uh, like, a, a, just as a gesture, yeah. I say, uh, does he speak about this? Yeah. You know, but we both know that we both uh, know. No, no, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. This is crucial right. how, what things we are supposed to know, but supposed to pretend we don't know, and so on. There is even, I will quote this in my new book, I found a book called Agnotology, or what something, it's really the science of unlearning. You know, it goes into, like, you know, it's like, the, the book claims that we need not only epistemology, the science of knowing, but we also need a science of not knowing, and different modalities of not knowing. For example, what does this mean ideologically? I spoke about this with Assange, and I had to convince him he was too naive. I told him, but are you aware that all these Snowden and WikiLeaks uh, disclosures, what we learn are details, but basically, I mean, did we learn anything that we did not already suspect that it is happening? But we were just, your example, acting, we preferred not to know it. And that's the tragedy. The majority, even at some point, of Americans, their attitude was not, oh, horrible, what they were doing. No, their attitude was, we pretend not to know. Those in power have to do certain things discreetly, we pretend not to know it. And I claim the great achievement of, uh, no, I mean it extremely benevolently, no bad feeling from me, uh, you, guy with the cap, Go to your room and sleep. I'm not terrorizing you. No, no, I'm not sleeping. I'm just uncomfortable. Ah, sorry, because I really yeah. need... Although, no, this is... I'm evil towards me, not to you. Yeah. Why don't you take a nice nap? I will try to speak with lower voice, and I promise you, at the end, we will awaken. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I use this in my book. I think it's a defense of lost causes. You know, Alain Badiou. That's why he's my best friend. Maybe you know the story. He really did this to me once. Even here, I think. It was a community like this. I had, at that point, some shady political connection in Slovenia. I had a free cell phone. A political friend gave it to me. He said, this is a good cell phone. It works everywhere, all the connections. It's not to your name. Do whatever you want with it. It worked everywhere. And, uh, but you knew this. I, and he asked me to... Uh, to, to, if he can borrow it from me. He was expecting an important call and so on. So, it was a talk like this. I was talking, he was sitting there, the phone rang, my phone even. He did it like this, not like, and then you know what he did? Isn't this a beautiful thing? At that point, we became absolute friends. Because as I wrote in my book, to do some, to someone this, you must either be an extremely brutal person or it's absolute friendship. He, while I was talking, he interrupted me while I was talking and said, Slavoj, I have to talk on the phone. Could you please talk a little bit lower? <laughs> if there is a definition of absolute friendship, I this is, this is he, no? Sorry, but, uh, so, I'm sorry, don't take it. I just, again, this chair is just uncomfortable. Yeah, I cannot, how to put it, whenever I see, you know, 
in Slovenia there is almost a saying about me that when in any social situation there is a slightest change, chance opening for making a tasteless remark or whatever, I will do it. <laughs> I kind of scan situation and see the opening for a tasteless remark. Sorry, let's go on. This science of not knowing. Uh, yes, that. Uh, 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 so again, I think that the sobering lesson of WikiLeaks is not so much secret services, that we ordinary people are no longer allowed to pretend that we don't know it. Because here comes my pessimist anthropology, if you want. I think most of the people don't want to know it. You have to... The, uh, uh, Lacan made some nice things, but Lacan ferociously opposes this notion of Wissenstrip, that there is ingrained deep in us some drive to know. No, Lacan said basically, when you come to truly dramatic points, we don't want to know it. And I, in one of my political books, I go to the end and claim that even in a democracy, I doubt if we really want to decide, ordinary people. We want to maintain the appearance that we decide. But we want to be given a clear choice, you know, like a master should tell us what we should choose freely. When we don't get a clear injunction what to choose, it's panic. It's usually real democracy. By this I mean where people really don't get a clear injunction and have to choose. It's usually experienced as a crisis of democracy. You know, so in this sense, I totally agree with you. There is a whole series types of not knowing. It's things that you really don't know. Then there are things that you don't know. There are then things which are simply prohibited. You should not know them. But then there are things that you have to know, but pretend uh, uh, not to know, and so on and so on. No, and yes, it would be nice to to do uh, science, as it were, a science of this. So let's go back to, uh, to ideology. This is what fascinates me, you know. This uh, moment, uh, this, uh, I put it, this, uh, this uh, much more interesting that, than the solicitation, than the prohibition which really solicits you to do it, or the standard example in patriarchal societies. Father tells you don't mess with girls. Everyone knows the message between the line is uh, do it but discreetly and so on and so on. And I'm not sure I use this example in, in my event book. I hope you don't know it. You know, at this level I quite like, although it's a stupid movie, my tastes are very low, but uh, to some of you I told you, but you know, I'm a friend of Alain but you, so I have no shame here. You know which movies he knows this. Uh, that I'm spreading this rumor and secretly he loves it. You know what type of movies Alain you liked? Did you see Bridges of the Medicine Country? Like, I don't think you can fall any lower. <laughs> <laughs> of Titanic, it's a mega movie for him. And then, you know, when he speaks about courage decision, here I agree with him. He likes these big catastrophe movies or good westerns and so on, you know. Why not? I have a fondness for some of old classical westerns. Okay, but let's go on. So, uh, 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 these types of, no yes, uh, the, uh, 
the prohibition, solicitation, and so on. Did you see another of these lowest movies? It was distributed, released, I think, around two years ago. A modest American movie which was a surprise hit, Project X. You know, in a small town, a high school kid who is a nerd wants to become popular, so he wants to organize a party. And he puts it on the web, come to my place, he expects maybe a dozen people, and that it happened, what really happened two years ago in, in Belgium, it was reported in the media. Yeah. You know what happened in Belgium? A girl put it on the net, come to my house, 50,000 people arrived. The whole city was occupied. <laughs> yes, it happened. So here is something similar. Uh, 5,000 people arrived. What happens is this, uh, in the movie, now I'm talking about Project X, the movie. This happens on a weekend when his father and mother, his parents, go for a short vacation trip. And father tells him exactly, maximum 10 people stay in the living room, don't touch the swimming pool, don't touch my car, and so on. What happens also is 5,000 people arrive, there is an explosion of violence, uh, a car goes into a swimming pool, car is ruined, the house is burned, there is street fighting, police intervenes with helicopters, and so on. And that's something beautiful happens at the movie's end. Father comes back, sees everything is ruined, and says to the son, it's irresponsible what you did, you will have to work for years to pay for it. And then father adds, but I must admit, I didn't expect you to have guts for it. You know, like, secret. <laughs> no. This is, I think, a good paternal authority. You know, like, this is what Lacan means when he says that an authentic authority prohibits things, but with this gently leaving you some, like, there I don't see you, there I'm even expecting you to do it. And maybe you know this story, Lacan draws attention to it. That even in Old Testament, you know, is it first, second, I don't know which commandment, don't celebrate other gods. But you know, if you literally translate that commandment, it doesn't say this. It says something a little bit more. It says, don't celebrate other gods in my presence. Like the idea being, Keep the appearances. What you do in your house is your problem. And maybe this is the secret of these great religions of the book monotheisms. Because, you know, in Islam, you find something wonderfully the same. Mohammed says, when he speaks about atheism, he says, no one should be ordered. What you believe is your problem. Mohammed expects you to follow the ritual. And he says, your beliefs, your problem. No. So what I want to say is that, uh, in this sense, Lacan claims that uh, the paternal prohibition, far from prohibiting, far from rendering enjoyment impossible, sustains it, opens up the space. That's how you enjoy. You know, you find a little niche where the big other doesn't see you, and. Uh, now you will say, what about if we have a truly totalitarian master who doesn't allow for this niche? No, a totalitarian master is even the opposite, I claim. It's the one who, it's not that he totally controls you, but he precisely wants actively to promote and 
regulate your pleasure. I'm sorry if you know another anecdote of mine, which I always use. Uh, um, imagine it's you are a small boy or girl, it's Sunday afternoon, your father orders you to visit the grandfather. You hate it. And the old patriarchal father would have done something wonderful. He would have said, tell you, I don't care how you feel, just do your duty, behave nicely there. That's perfect. There will be no problems. You would hate your father secretly, which is very good, you will blah, blah. But then if you get a modern permissive father, nightmare enters. What he would have told you is something like, you know how much your grandmother loves you, but nonetheless, I want you to decide freely and to visit her only if you really want to. Every kid, and children are not stupid, knows that beneath the appearance of choice, you have a much stronger injunction. The injunction is not you have to visit your grandmother, but you have to freely visit her. You have to want to visit her. This is the formula of totalitarianism. You know, where, uh, again, it's not just this is why I like conservatism, which is just fuck off, I don't care what you think, obey it, you know. And this is why Lacan has this formula of uh, uh, regulating enjoyment and all the stuff. And I think this is maybe the basic formula of, if this term has any meaning, totalitarianism. For example, a Stalinist regime is not simply telling its subjects Whatever you mean, you have to follow our orders. No, it's telling you, we know better than you what you really want. You know? But, okay, that's another story. Let's go on. So, this imbalance interests me. How uh, the, again, ideology or uh, in United States Army, it's not only those marching chants, it's all those rituals, how do you call them, uh, uh, fragging or whatever, you know? There is no military community without some dirty, obscene, usually sexualized rituals. And I think it's crucial to see how those moments are it. May I use another example, maybe some of you know it, but it makes the point so clear. I'm sorry if you know it. You know Casablanca. Every civilized person should know it. You know? That mysterious thing seen two-thirds into the film when, uh, 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 when uh, Ingrid Bergman comes to Humphrey Bogart's Ricky's flat, I asks for those mysterious visas for Portugal, whatever, exit visas. And, okay, they first struggle, I mean, shout, then they embrace, and you have a fade out for two or three and a half seconds, you see the tower of the Casablanca airport, then, after three and a half seconds, we, we move back, and you see the two of them continuing the conversation. Now, the big question is the obvious one. What do those three and a half seconds stand for, narratively? Does it mean they did it, that it's just a condensed version for they had sex, or it's just that the same conversation goes on. And a guy who hates my type of theory, but it's not stupid, a British cinema theorist, Richard Maltby, did a wonderful analysis of it where he demonstrates that the movie does something ingenious. He gives you clearly contradictory signal in both directions. 
on the one hand, you get clear signals that they did it. Because you know, classical Hollywood was totally codified. Like, sex was prohibited, but you had ways to signal it. And it would be extremely interesting to compare Soviet censorship and Hollywood censorship in late 1930s. I wonder which one was more controlled. For example, you know that in classical Hollywood, uh, homosexuality was prohibited, even to mention it. But you know what was the code? You can check it up in some classical noir films. If somebody mentions about the guy, oh, you use perfume, what is a perfume? This means you are gay. Or another, even more comical thing, prostitution was prohibited directly. So the code word was, that woman is from New Orleans, don't ask me why. It means she's a prostitute. So in the same way, when a couple is embracing, kissing, and you have a fade out, it means sex. Especially if afterwards they smoke, you see them smoking. Because the basic dogma of Hollywood is that great human wisdom, which is the second and the third most enjoyable thing in the world. A drink the drink before and the cigarette after. You know? So uh, again, then there are so it's uh, this codification, the fade out, and some other elements give a clear signal they did it. At the same time, they are fully dressed. The same conversation seems to go on. They did not do it, and this is the perfect functioning of ideology. It is as if imagine yourself observed by an ethical each other, the film treats you as a divided subject. We will give you arguments so that you can pretend. I'm just watching an innocent movie, nothing goes on. At the same time, we open up the space for all the dirty fantasies what they were doing. And you know there is a guy, I forgot his name, who wrote a short story called As Time Goes By, which doesn't work. But it's a wonderful idea. It's, uh, it's a short story about this scene. It begins with uh, Ingrid Bergman going up, then, then, and at the end, but in between, you have 15 pages of absolute hardcore pornography, you know. And the beauty is that it gives an obscene twist to the best-known Humphrey Bogart uh, phrases, you know. Like, you know, here's to you, kid. You know, in this version, he puts his penis out and says, here's to you, kid, and puts his penis into it. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that, uh, uh, if you make it explicit in this way, I'm opposed to it. I think things get ruined. But again, as Maltby makes it clear in his analysis, you see, this is my point, is that, uh, it's not that we have official Hollywood and then that this is again a site of resistance, all the obscenity. No! The obscenities generated by these old hints are part of Hollywood. Hollywood ideology is both. It's the official prohibitions and their transgressions, strictly codified. And Baldwin quotes some wonderful dialogues of Joseph Brin, who was the boss of case office with some directors where director was saying oh here we have a romantic encounter and Joseph Brin, the censor, asked them listen, tell me what happened did they fuck or not? If they did I will tell you how to signal it and so on you know. So uh, you see uh, this is the sad lesson 
Know that, again, ideology at the same time has this obscene underground and so on and so on. So now let's go on with what I wanted to develop, which is after this stupid, we were at the beginning at object A, yes. So would you agree, now I'm again the Brazilian master <laughs> addressing you, both in drive and in desire, object A is the cause. I, I'm not sure myself, but I tried to, because Lacan in one of the Q&A sessions at the end of one session in Seminar 11, I think he's even asked this question directly. What is the difference of the status of object A in desire and in drive? And he squeezes out more or less, I think. But I think that uh, the, maybe the difference is that it's a very subtle one. Desire is still a desire for a lost object, you know. You have an X, you are searching for it, forever it eludes you. While in drive, the object is directly lost as such. You know, it doesn't have this endlessly running after. You directly enjoy uh, the loss as such. So now, to elaborate this, I think we should do this I will send you all these texts. It's more uh, interesting, I think, if we do this. Uh, why don't we, because it gave, you gave me the idea of how maybe I will try to convince you how Lacan works if we go a little bit into this uh, elementary Lacanian coordinate, like uh, what we were saying, uh, 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 Lacan's theory of discourses, how simply convincing they are. Just remember what I already was improvising here. Namely, how for Lacan, uh, 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 the lost object is primordially the subject itself. The lost object is not, oh, I don't know what I want. The lost object is what am I for the others. And I think this provides, you know, Lacan, his first discourse is the so-called uh, uh, master's discourse. And it's very, okay, easy. A subject is represented by some signifier, name, whatever, I don't want to go into it. Then you address the other, and but there is something which eludes this which causes the failure of this failure is the product. Like, the object is that which, the excess, what is in, as they usually put it, what is in me more than myself. Like, this is the remainder. Like, as they say, Jean Secois, that's what's in me more than myself or that. This is the elementary structure. From this, you know, if you just uh, move things a little bit, precisely this enigma, like, I played the game of representation, I am represented, but the enigma remains. Remainders produced. Like, but what am I? This, this is the cause of hystericization. And if you want to study ideology, I claim that, that's the greatness of Lacan, that uh, I think we should read what Lacan calls hysterical discourse as precisely resisting interpolation. Because as Lacan himself says, 
the basic hysterical question is what for an object I am. Like, okay, it's very annoying, this is the only moment that I do hate women, you know, this eternal question. Why do you love me? You know, like, give me the reasons and so on, you know. This is the hysterical question. So, you see, you are represented, like, I am a teacher, unfortunately, for you, my students. But fuck it, it doesn't really function. And it's very nicely done how here you have the fantasy structure. Like, I am represented by a signifier, I have a symbolic identity and so on. Something eludes it and fantasy fills in this gap. Okay, but let's go on. So this hystericizes me. So we move it, it works so nicely, then we get the... Uh, 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 we get the hysterical discourse. If you understood this, you understand this here as a divided subject. What am I split between signifying? I don't know what I am, so I am addressing a question to the master to give me knowledge, to tell me what I am as the object. You see how beautifully it works, you know, like a woman, uh, you, my master, you say you love me, tell me, give me knowledge, what an object I am, what do you love me? This is the only point where I really hate women. <laughs> okay, then uh, uh, you have another version where knowledge is here the product, which is why Lacan is far from, you should remember this, far from dismissing hysteria. That's another topic. Uh, one of the unfortunate things of the 68 revolution, sexual, was, and even the uh, uh, lady, not totally innocent here, was elevating perversion and dismissing hysteria. Like, you know, hysterics are confused, they don't know what they want, they subvert the master, but they want the master, while perverts go to the end. No, Freud is totally opposed to this. Freud always emphasized, and Lacan repeats it, that a pervert always perfectly fits relations of domination. Every oppressive regime has a place for perverts. The truly subversive position is not that of a pervert, but is that of a... Uh, is that of a... His, his, new knowledge is produced only by hysterical discourse. And incidentally, this is even a nice uh, proto-feminist point, because, you know, the subject par excellence, hysterical subject, is the feminine subject. Which means something pretty radical, people usually don't get it, that for Lacan, not only is the subject not secretly masculine, no, the subject at its most elementary is feminine subject. Subjectivity is in itself feminine. It's not like some critics read Descartes, the pure cogito is secretly masculine. Then, we can also put this one in the leading position. Uh, 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 yeah, S. Uh, 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 and, uh, sorry, uh, uh, we, uh, uh, sorry. Aha, uh, uh -huh, yes, like this. And uh, uh, no, it's the opposite. Sorry, no, 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 no. I'm not doing the. Sorry, one is two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's the opposite here. Yes. Uh, 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 this is university discourse, which is not a discourse of 
real productive knowledge, but it's the discourse of true power, because product, really productive no, knowledge is hysterical knowledge. It can also be explained. Like, let's say you are addressed by a hysterical subject. What I, uh, here, object A would be a, the not yet symbolized remainder, let's say, the object of pedagogical process, not yet subject. Pedagogical process is a knowledge addressing that excess and making it into a subject. The beauty is, what does this master here mean? It can be wonderfully explained that, uh, uh, as Lacan puts it, the trick of the university discourse is that it pretends to be, oh, it's just neutral knowledge, but it's really master, or to put it in fashionable terms, it has a normative dimension. If you want a mega example is today's economic experts, you know, they proclaim, oh, austerity and so on, it's just uh, our economic knowledge. No, you know, this is typical today's discourse of authority. It doesn't directly act as a master, it pretends to be we are just experts and so on, but uh, there is a master here. And okay, don't lose time to keep the tensions. I will say that I will on purpose, okay, but nonetheless, let's do it then. Okay, maybe I should do it. Then the last one, of course, uh, we get the discourse of the analyst. The analyst is the conscious precisely you should not assume a clear symbolic identity. Analysts speak from this position of the enigmatic remainder, addressing the patient, hysterical patient, and here you have literally the, the supposed knowledge. Analysts, the exercise supposed to know, and uh, what does it mean that master signifier is produced? This as Miller developed nicely. Production here does not mean the final result, but it's more the excess, the remainder. Think about what we are talking about. Types of knowledge which only function insofar as they remain unspoken. The result of the analysis is that it brings out, and in this sense, disinvestments, as it were the master signifier which defines your identity and so on and so on. Here, okay, it was very wildly improvised what I did here, but I hope I gave you one idea of how all these Lacanian schemes, they may appear simply, but fuck it, they work. And what is so wonderful is that they then allow so many different readings, and now I will say something evil, but evil in a very friendly way, about my good friend Alain Badiou. When he uses these drawings, Matens, I don't think they function in this perfect way. <laughs> <laughs> he just writes it down, you know. He said, subject, object, and write it, S-O, but my God, he doesn't have this, how to put it, this, this wealth of, uh, you know, of generating, these are really noble points around which you can produce, generate so many, and so on. This is why, going back to the point that you said, this is why I think it's not only object A, it's all Lacanian terms that have this wealth of uh, 
The question is always the different levels of how you can read them. For example, I wrote this in one of my old books. If you have the trial real, what is Lacanian real? Again, you have at least three dimensions. First, you must be very careful about which Lacan you speak, because the real for early Lacan is usually just external reality. But then, once you get the real real, it has at least, again, three levels, and my reading is that the very triad of real symbolic imaginary is reflected into the...